Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. This episode contains discussions on verbal and physical abuse, eating disorders, prenatal depression, and rape, so listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season six, episode 10, the final full-length episode of this season. Ah! Yeah, and we're so excited for you to join us. Yeah, Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1976 supernatural horror drama, Carrie. The screenplay was written by Lawrence D. Cohen, and the film was directed by Brian De Palma. The film stars Sissy Spacek, Piper Laurie, Amy Irving, William Kett, Nancy Allen, and Betty Buckley. Oh, and John Travolta is in the movie, too. (laughs) The film is based on Stephen King's 1974 debut novel of the same name. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. So, Carrie, published in 1974, is Stephen King's first novel, and it would also be the first book of his to be adapted to the screen. And I think he got, like, next to nothing for when they made this into a film. And I think he was just like, that's fine. I just want whatever you're going to give me so that this becomes a movie. (laughs) Oh, my God. So according to a 1977 interview with director Brian De Palma for Cinefantastique, a year after it was published, the book was suggested to him by one of King's friends. De Palma loved the book and was certain that the rights had already been bought for a feature film. When he called his agent to ask, the agent told him that, no, the rights hadn't been purchased yet. So De Palma quickly called around to different studios, talking up the book and explaining how he'd love to make it into a film. And six months later, United Artists bought the rights and hired De Palma as the director, with Lawrence D. Cohen as the screenwriter. 26-year-old Sissy Spacek wasn't interested in auditioning at first, but was persuaded by her husband, Jack Fisk, the film's production designer, to audition. So, Spacek canceled a television commercial she was scheduled to film and went to her audition with De Palma. She had apparently messed up her hair and face and wore an old outfit that still fit her from when she was a kid. Oh my god. Yeah, her performance, as well as her unique look, landed her the lead role. And boom, that is how you get it done. So shooting began in early 1976 in Santa Paula and Hollywood, California. In the final scene, where Carrie reaches for Sue's arm from the grave in a dream sequence, De Palma actually filmed that scene backwards to give that more dreamy feeling. And Sissy Spacek didn't use a body double. She was actually buried underneath the rubble. Wow, nice. I think her husband was the one that buried her, though. Which oh my god. Which is better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So Carrie premiered on November 3rd, 1976 and received widespread critical and general acclaim and was cited as one of the best films of the year with a positive review from Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times, which is unheard of. Yeah. And Stephen Farber, who stated in a 1978 issue of New West Magazine, quote, it's a horror classic, and years from now, it will still be written and argued about, and it will still be scaring the daylights out of new generations of moviegoers, unquote. Nice. And isn't that so true, though? I can't believe in 1976 he said that. No, I know. It's incredible. Empire Magazine actually reported that writer-director Quentin Tarantino placed Carrie on his list of his top 11 favorite films ever. Oh my god, nice. Yeah, and Carrie was also nominated for multiple Academy Awards, including nominations for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress for Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie. According to film critic Anton Bittel, quote, Carrie's climatic empowerment is all at once the tragedy and triumph of a young woman trapped between biblical regression and a secular coming out. Unquote. So with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. Carrie White is a shy, strange girl who doesn't fit in with her typical high school classmates. One day in gym class, she gets her period for the first time and has no idea what's happening to her, and her classmates taunt her by throwing pads and tampons at her in the shower until her gym teacher, Miss Collins, kindly intervenes and explains to Carrie what is happening to her body. Carrie is sent home to her overbearing, mentally ill, religious zealot of a mother who punishes her for reaching womanhood and becoming quote-unquote sinful. Meanwhile, her classmates are forced to pay for their bullying by attending detention-style gym class led by Miss Collins, who threatens to void their prom tickets should they feel like skipping out on their punishment. One girl, Christine, decides that she won't be subjected to Miss Collins' lessons, and her prom privileges are revoked, spurring her insatiable need for revenge at any cost. Feeling badly for how Carrie was treated, another classmate named Sue asks her boyfriend Tommy to take Carrie to the prom as a way to apologize for her part in the bullying. Carrie reluctantly agrees to attend prom with Tommy after being encouraged by Miss Collins. While she agrees, convincing her mother to let her go is a different story altogether. But Mrs. White finally gives in after Carrie displays some of her powers of telekinesis, which allows her to move objects around the house with her mind. Carrie sews herself a beautiful dress and dons some prom-worthy hair, and she and Tommy are voted king and queen. However, the voting was rigged so that Christine could exact her revenge. As Carrie accepts her award, she is doused by a bucket of pig's blood that Christine and her terrible boyfriend had rigged up before the prom. As the bucket falls, it hits Tommy in the head and knocks him unconscious as the auditorium is filled with laughter from her classmates. In a fit of rage, Carrie kills everyone by trapping them in the building and setting it on fire. As Christine escapes with her boyfriend, Carrie stops and kills them by flipping their car and setting it on fire with her powers. She walks home and washes the blood off and finds her mother, who finally admits to Carrie that she was the result of marital rape and that she was sinful for enjoying it. And she stabs her and throws her down the stairs. Using her powers again, Carrie impales her mother with several knives until she is dead, and her anger and pent-up emotion actually bring down the house on top of them both as they lay dying in each other's arms. The house sinks into the ground along with their bodies. 
Sue is the only one of the classmates that survives Carrie's attack, and she returns to the site of Carrie's house to leave flowers for her. But Carrie's arms pop up out of the ground to grab her, and she wakes up, screaming from her nightmare. I just noticed that you kept saying Christine instead of Chris. Oh, you're right. But the whole movie, she's called Chris. Yes, you're correct. Christine. I was like, who's Christine? (laughs) Got it. Whips. Everybody's going to be like, who the fuck? (laughs) That's okay. It was still a wonderful plot summary. Oh, thank you so much. So the Bechdel test. Yes, it definitely passes. And it passes between like multiple characters because there's so many women in this film. It's great. Mm -hmm. The women either talk about Carrie or other women, the dance, high school in general, or religion. So I think that's pretty good. Yeah, not too shabby. No. And Nancy's dream team test, as always, does not do as well. But we do have one check on here. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? Yes. Hell yes, it was. Yay. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? No. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. In fact, everyone in this film is white. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? Nope. So there's that. Uh, let's get into discussion. Uh, I want to start with gothic and fairy tale inspiration in Carrie. Yes. So you guys know that I love talking about fairy tales and gothic literature when we talk about horror movies because they are so similar. It's true. If you remember our episode on Suspiria, we talked heavily on the use of color, especially the primary colors blue and red. And the director of Suspiria, Dario Argento, and his wife and the writer, Daria Nicolodi, were greatly inspired by the use of color in The Wizard of Oz. And I don't know if that's where De Palma got his inspiration for the prom scene, but we see all of the primary colors in the lights during the dance with like sparkles and stars everywhere. And it's very magical. It feels like a like childhood, you know, it feels like a, it, I mean, it, it, these are kids at a dance, but it, there's something about the primary colors that feels like, I don't know, like a preschool classroom kind of thing, you know, yeah. like there's something really sweet about it. And We see that everywhere at the dance. And then once the red blood lands on Carrie and her telekinetic powers take over, she doesn't cut the lights completely. She just turns them red. Yeah. And the majority of the scene is lit in red, but there is some blue colors on the wall behind her and in the dresses on some of the victims which is contrasting with the red of her like her dress is pink but it it appears to be like this red and the red of the blood and the red lights so there's this blue and red contrast which sounds a lot like perfect blue which was another film that we recently discussed in this season yeah definitely so we see that here as well and obviously there's more than just color theory going on here with like the fairy tale theme there are a lot of similarities between carrie and gothic literature as well and there's this great article by a writer that goes by the name of linley and they talk about the story techniques that are used in writing carrie and they explain that the idea of the gothic quote The female gothic is about the suppression of female sexuality or challenges the gender hierarchy and values of a male-dominated culture, unquote. Lindley also explains how, quote-unquote, night journeys 
are a common element seen throughout Gothic literature and fairy tales. Like prom happens in this and prom is always held after dark, like, and it provides like the perfect reason for a night journey for our Gothic leading lady, Carrie. Mm-hmm. And Lindley also says, quote, King has used a number of character archetypes from the Gothic novel to create his story world. We have the virginal maiden, which is Carrie, the older foolish woman, which is Mrs. White, Carrie's mother, the hero, which we could interpret as Sue, tyrant or villain, Chris and her boyfriend, bandits and ruffians, the cast of schoolgirls who mock Carrie rather than standing up for her. Wow. Yeah, so that's a great article. It's in the show notes, so check it out. Carrie could also be like a fractured Cinderella of sorts, which I also really love. Like the similarities to her and Cinderella are pretty damning to say the least. And there was even that, I don't know if you remember this, there was that viral video that was made with clips from Disney's Cinderella with the sounds from the Carrie 2013 movie. Oh my God. Like the trailer. Yeah. Yeah. And much like Gothic literature, fairy tales have a virginal maiden, Carrie, an older woman, a witch, or a stepmother, and this could also be Mrs. White, heroes, and this could be Sue again, I guess, and ruffians, aka evil stepsisters, like the bullies at the school. In many modern horror films, this idea of whimsy and the fantastic surrounds these stories and these characters, and it makes sense that most of the main characters in horror are women, because most of the time they are the main characters in fairy tales, too. Mm -hmm. And this is why I love Clarissa Pinkola Estes' book, Women Who Run With Wolves. She shows us in her book that we, as women, can use myths and fairy tales to understand our own female psyche and learn self-reliance. Now, in modern times, women can look at horror for those two exact things. Oh my god, yes. I love that. So... I just discussed, right, gothic and fairy tale themes and characters and Carrie, and Carrie could potentially represent the virginal maiden, but let's briefly look at her in a different light right now. When we truly look at this film like a teen horror film, there is usually, right, a final girl, a monster, and the monster's victims. Well, where does Carrie fit into this trifecta? Author Carol J. Clover argues in her book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, that Carrie is, in fact, all three. And that as an audience member, we are able to relate to all of these sides of her. And I absolutely agree with the sentiment. Yeah, for sure. I think this is what makes her so powerful because she goes through like a growth spurt, essentially, in a super short amount of time. And we watch her go from this like powerless character at the hands of her abusive mother. And then all of a sudden, like all this rage and emotional turmoil turns her into something fierce and unstoppable. It's crazy. Yeah, it's she is a rare bird here. Like I am thinking of maybe uh, Mary from American Mary is one cat people. Yeah. Oh, my God. You're right. Yeah. And you know, like those would be two, I would feel like two characters that were very similar to Carrie. Okay, so let's talk about body horror, blood, and puberty in Carrie. Mm. So I think for those of us who were already familiar with Carrie before this episode began, know that this film has some major blood themes. Yes. <laughs> and I feel like like you don't really get that in a horror movie 
that's not about vampires or maybe about childbirth, but especially vampires. Like, blood themes aren't very common. Like, Carrie is a teen slasher of sorts, but blood plays a huge part in the story precisely because it's a teen horror film. Right. Normally, it's just like this guy in a mask trying to stalk you, but this time it's like blood is literally everywhere. In Carrie, though, the horror doesn't come from, like, the toxic male figure wearing a mask. It comes from a young woman who is just now discovering her body at the ripe age of 17. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing. Carrie is very old to be getting her period. And obviously, humans are not robots, so we all aren't going to exactly develop the same way naturally, which is fine. But usually, when you get your period as late as Carrie does, it's the sign of a problem. Right. And I looked it up, and apparently, according to kidshealth.org and WebMD, 98% of people who menstruate get their periods by the time they are 15. Wow. So Carrie is in the measly 2%. Oh my god, she's an outlier. (laughs) Yes. So this is normally because the teen is either underweight or overweight, or they have an eating disorder of some kind. But another major reason that makes sense in Carrie's case is stress. Yeah. Not only does Carrie have a nightmarish school life, but also home life. So I would not be surprised if this were the logical reason in the story behind her getting her period so late. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it could have started with Carrie's mother as well. Like, there's a study by Mary E. Cousins Reed, which I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. She wrote a great article. Um, She is a doctor of psychology, and she states that there is accumulating evidence from human and animal studies that exposure to prenatal stress can affect the health, development, and long-term functioning of offspring via both direct and indirect pathways. Prenatal stress can indirectly affect infant health and development by increasing the risk of occurrence of adverse birth outcomes, which are in turn associated with substantial developmental and health consequences. In addition, stress may exert an indirect effect on infant development by, for example, predisposing mothers to perinatal depression, which can have a negative effect on the interaction of the mother with her infant and or affect the quality of postnatal care. Prenatal stress can also have direct effects on infant health by altering the course of fetal neurological development. Studies suggest, for example, that exposure to glucorticoids in utero, either through maternal stress or exogenous administration, can affect the development of stress response in the fetus, which can have long-lasting effects on behavior and physiology. Oh. Yeah, both the direct and indirect effects of prenatal stress can have lasting consequences for both development and functioning of offspring across the lifespan. So we know that obviously Margaret has some mental health issues that aren't tended to, but she says that Carrie is basically a product of rape, which obviously is going to hinder her development in the womb and beyond. That is insane. I kind of want to look at more of the symbolism behind the blood in Carrie now, too. That was more like the logical reasons of Mm -hmm. blood and stuff. Holly Durr says in her essay entitled The Blood of Carrie, quote, 
I can't believe I'm about to go all Freudian here, but for the male viewer, the shock of seeing unexpected blood between one's legs clearly represents a fear of castration. Yikes. A literal embodiment of King's anxieties about feminism, which we'll get to in a minute. Oof. From the woman's perspective, the menstrual blood obviously signifies Carrie's maturation, coming into her power, which has been marred by fundamentalism. Ooh, yikes. Um, Yeah, so there's that. I think that it's a, a bit frightening that that is maybe the only way a man might be sympathetic towards Carrie. Yeah, that's... Because they don't know... Because, obviously, there are people who identify as male who do get their periods, but um, I guess I'm talking about cisgender men who may not be able to understand, like, exactly what that feeling is like. Right. Yeah, so in an essay by Kate Maher entitled The Vagina as a Bleeding Wound, Monstrous Puberty and Carrie, the Exorcist and Ginger Snaps, she says of menstruation and horror, quote, Menstruation is one of the few aspects of femininity that has remained taboo within cinema where menstruating women become horrific, bleeding monsters, Jeez Louise. Yeah. So there's also that scene in the girls' locker room that I think has always affected me the most, and that's when Carrie gets her period for the first time, and the girls start yelling, plug it up. And they're, like you said in the plot summary, they're throwing tampons and towels at her, and it's such a brutal scene and it's really truly frightening because Carrie is obviously upset about what is happening but the girls are acting in a way that is not only cruel but extremely insensitive to a woman who is the same sex as them yeah and obviously they should at this point all know what it's like to get their period but instead of being like being like a like a bond like I mean like that's something for them all to bond over they treat it like it's an embarrassment Mm -hmm. something that is disgusting and should be stopped hence why plug it up sounds so frightening they treat her like she's a disgrace for even thinking of getting her period blood everywhere accidentally not only does this internal misogyny show in the girls when it comes to menstrual blood but it's shown in Margaret her mother when she begins to misquote scripture to Carrie about the sins of being a menstruating woman. Yeah, it kind of makes me feel like, too, it's like a it's kind of like a metaphor for women in general to be to like hide their own feelings too, like plug it up, like don't say anything about like the way that you're feeling about getting your period. Don't show you're afraid. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember when I was a kid, my mom was very, very open about talking about periods. Yeah, I remember that. It was so, it's like our households were so different. And I loved like being so open with your mom and stuff about that kind of stuff. It was something that even before I got my my period, like she was very open about her own period. She was very open about like, this is what's happening. And I knew a lot of girls 
I didn't realize that was something that wasn't open in your house, but I knew some, I knew some girls who were so embarrassed about getting their period that they never talked about it. Like they would hide, like if I had like tampons or pads in my purse and they would like fall out, I'd be like, oh, blah, blah, blah. I wouldn't even like say anything or I'd be like, oh, you know, I'm on my period or like whatever. And they would like look at me like, oh my God. Like what the, and I was like, what? Like, I was like, what the heck? But it was because my mom was so open about it. And I remember I would, I had friends, even when I was in college, who were like shocked how open I was about my period. But it's normal. I know. Even in like the, like last decade or so, it's so awesome to see like this whole movement of people being open about it and like just being very upfront, like at least in, in our country or like even in just our local area it's such a huge deal and um it's it's wild to me like how much it's evolved even over a decade like man oh man no but truly because i was in i started college in 2006 and um i graduated in 2010 and and it's amazing how much has changed you're right in like the last decade yeah I have a headache today because I have my period like I'm sorry that offends you yeah like like, it's a body get over it (laughs) well it's not just a body it's your body too like your body goes through the same exact thing again instead of having it be a bonding moment between Carrie and these girls they scream at her and they make fun of her yeah for even daring to have her period Mm mm-hmm And of course, so there's the whole menstrual blood part of this film. But then, of course, there's the pig blood that's in this as well. Chris has her dumb boyfriend, Billy, kill a poor pig and slit its throat to get its blood, which is like legit overkill. No kidding. Oh, my God. (laughs) Every time I watch this film, I'm like, yikes, these people are dangerous. They are. (laughs) They legitimately are like sociopaths. Can you imagine being in high school and sneaking into like a slaughterhouse, killing a pig and like having to collect the blood from the pig that you killed? It's such a goddamn process. Like, can't you just make some corn syrup and like call it a day? Like, well, listen, like Chris easily could have just put a bucket of water over Carrie's head rather than a bucket of pig's blood. Yeah. Like that's what I mean. Like this whole this whole prank, this whole mean joke is overkill. It's it's in, it's literally insane. And I mean, both her and Billy are really dangerous people. Yeah. And we kind of learn that about them when we see them together. Like they're both terrible people. Oh my god, so abusive. And like as much as I don't like Chris, both of them are. She gets the crap beat out of her for the entire movie. Yes, she does. She does. He is he is an abusive asshole. Even from the gym teacher. <laughs> You're right. There's a lot of abuse in this. But, yeah. you know, we don't have a section on here about Chris, but she's definitely somebody who I think has a very rough home life. Yeah. Because, and this is just me, this is just an observation, like, uh, as somebody who's just watching this film. Mm-hmm. Because she takes the beatings like they're normal. Yes. In fact, I would argue that her home life might be very similar to Carrie's. Oh, yeah. Yeah, probably. So I can see why she's a scapegoat, like Carrie's her scapegoat. It's like she hates the meeker side of her. And so she punishes it and it ends up being Carrie. So 
with Chris using pig's blood instead of like a bucket of water or corn syrup, uh, what's happening with this is that Chris is using Carrie's traumatic first period experience against her once again. Just like when Carrie gets her period, she is vulnerable even though she feels safe in the shower and she's enjoying the warm water and the soap and she feels clean and fresh and then she suddenly thinks she's dying. And this happens at the prom, too. Carrie feels safe and happy for, like, the first time in her life. She also feels loved. And then the blood comes back. But this time it's not Carrie's. Or is it? To Chris, it is. Carrie is a pig to her. She is worse than dirt. Chris's hate for Carrie is so strong, she is willing to commit overkill to ruin her night. And then, of course, she tries to actually kill Carrie by running her over with her car. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it's this internal, she hates something about herself that she sees in Carrie, I think, right. is the big part of it. Yeah. But this hate isn't just between Chris and Carrie. It's prominent among all of the women in this film. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my God. And that leads us to our next topic, which is the lack of female kinship in Carrie. There's no female kinship in this film. Absolutely none. And the women are all either disgusted by each other or by themselves. Yeah. And I think there's only one time we see any sort of sweet relationship between two women. And it's when Carrie and Tommy first get to the dance. And there's a nameless girl holding Carrie's arm and asking her about her dress and where they're going to sit. And I don't recognize this girl from the group of mean girls. Maybe she is part of them. I don't know. I didn't actually double check, to be honest with you. But she seems really kind. And I mean, even when, I'm just remembering this now, even when the blood falls on Carrie, um, she doesn't uh, like laugh at first. PJ mm-hmm. Soul's character, Nora... Uh, or Norma, she makes, she like punches her boyfriend, is like, laugh, this is funny. But we never actually see this this nameless girl laugh at Carrie. So it's so funny because it's like, who, wait, where'd she, where'd this girl come from, you know? Mm-hmm. If she is part of the group of girls, guys, let me know. I did not notice her, but maybe she was. But I, this is like the only time that we see any sort of female kinship in the film. And Like, you could argue that Mrs. Collins is on Carrie's side, but I disagree. I think it's one of the many reasons why she's one of the casualties at the end, because according to Mara Reisman, quote, although she tries to help Carrie, the gym coach initially is not much better than the bullying girls. As she admits to the principal, I knew how they felt. The whole thing made me just want to take her and shake her. And in fact, the coach does shake and slap Carrie in an attempt to calm her down. Mm-hmm. So she also tries to help Carrie by like pitying her and tries to, I guess, emotionally shake her by making her feel like she has to go to the dance and she has to go with a boy and she has to put makeup on and that like Carrie is nothing without these things and granted Carrie might not feel like she deserves any of these things and Mrs. Collins is making her feel like she does but at the same time Mrs. Collins could have said you know Carrie you're beautiful just the way you are and you don't need to go to the dance and you need to do these things to be special right she doesn't ever she doesn't say that she doesn't do that Carrie is like the anti-geek to glam story. She's the anti-Princess Diaries, yes. I guess. Yes, yep. And it backfires not only on Carrie, but on everyone else at that prom. 
like the message is that the only way Carrie will have confidence is if she puts on some makeup and wears a sexy dress. And it's this toxic idea of a teenage girl's rite of passage, basically. Mm-hmm. As we all know, like yes, sometimes changing your outward appearance can help, but it's only part of the process of gaining confidence. Like, more importantly, you need to heal what's inside yourself. You need to heal your soul. Because this outward facade, like, it never lasts. Like, we all grow old. We all, you know, we all don't, we don't wear makeup literally 24-7. Mm-hmm. So with that said, Carrie does have a power. She can make things move with her mind. Like she's basically a superhero. And like that is all within her. That's so much special about what's within her. And no one can see this wonderful thing about her. They all just try to change her outward appearance without even considering what she has to offer that, that's in her mind. Going back to all of the women in this, there are so many opportunities for there to be female friendships, but because of like outward stuff that happens, they just all backfire. Like there's Margaret and Sue's mom, Eleanor, who low-key hate each other. <laughs> like <laughs> yes. that scene where Margaret Margaret's <laughs> entrance where she shows up shows up at, you know, Sue Snell's house and she's trying to sell like these pamphlets. They, they hate each other. They're trying, she's trying to get rid of her. And then Margaret thinks that her family's are, family are sinners. So it's like, okay. Yeah. And then Mrs. Collins also hates the bully girls and they hate her back. And even Sue hates her best friend, Chris. And at one point she just tells her to just shut up. Yeah. I mean, I can't help but feel like maybe it's because the story was written by a man who may be unfamiliar with like the ins and outs of female friendships and relationships. <laughs> Like, I feel like that's a big part of it. But in the same breath, I think Carrie's relationships with other women are strained because of her own relationship with her mother and the lack of bonding that occurred between, like, parent and child. Now, psychology has shown over and over how important the bonding stage is in infancy. And if Margaret viewed Carrie as nothing more than a product of sin, then, of course, like, their bond would be non-existent. And this is reflected in all of the relationships that surround Carrie's life. Like, even Sue's mother seems a little distant. Like, her daughter is just within arm's reach. And uh, she's a worldly woman, but that doesn't mean she's any better than Margaret White. And in fact, they seem like the same people on opposite ends of the spectrum. So it's like all of these weird, strained mother-daughter relationships are, like, carrying through the next generations and it's super subtle and like I didn't really catch it until watching it this last time but I was like oh my god like none of these women really get along with each other the only one who does something kind like out of the goodness of her heart for another woman is Sue even Sue's intentions are flawed yeah because again it's like Carrie will feel better if Carrie has a date and goes to the prom right but, like, when the prom is over, Tommy's not going to s- stay with Carrie. Right, He's going to exactly. go back to Sue. Yeah. So that fantasy, that Cinderella moment is over. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, Sue should know that. Another thing that really bugs me, and, you know, maybe this is this is obviously, like, a thing of the past, um, but you need a date to go to the prom. 
Yes. That is so incredibly toxic. <laughs> I know. Like, well, I guess you can't go because nobody asked you to go. Like, what the even and heck? I don't And I think it's like you need a boy. You need a boy to go. Like, girlfriends or, like, girls who are in relationships with their girls, like, they can't go. So it's not like Sue can be like, you can hang out with Tommy and me at the prom. Right. That would have worked. But the fact that you need a date to go to the prom is so stupid. It is stupid. <laughs> it really is. I hope that's not a... Th- I Like I said, I was homeschooled Like in other episodes. I've mentioned that. So I never went to prom. But that was... You said you went with friends when you went, right? Oh, yeah. I went with one of my best friends in high school. And we had a great time. <laughs> so... Yeah. And I just recently remembered this, but I just mentioned how, like, nobody knows, like, what's inside of Carrie. Like, nobody knows about what she has to offer that's coming from inside of her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but her mom actually does know. Her mom knows Carrie's inner power because she has seen it. But Margaret doesn't think it's wonderful or that it's a miracle. She thinks it's Satan. She thinks that it's evil. So the one person who knows what wonders Carrie has to offer to the world completely disregards it and thinks that it's the devil's work. Yep. But to continue this discussion on how important female relationships are, I actually saw an article that came from 2018 from Psychology Today by Dr. Kristen Fuller, and she talks about the importance of female friendships, and she actually references a medical and psychological study in her article, and she says, quote, the psychology behind strong female friendships is strong. According to a study published by the Journal of Clinical Oncology, women with early stage breast cancer were four times more likely to die from cancer if they didn't have very many friends. Wow. Uh, Those with a larger group of friends with early stage breast cancer had a much better survival rate. This beneficial effect of friendship was felt whether the friends lived near or far. An article published in the New York Times website states that women feel they can count on their friends to pull through for them no matter what they are struggling with in their lives. Women are each other's emotional support system, from giving advice, being a shoulder to cry on, keeping secrets, lending a listening ear, and boosting self-esteem. To develop strong and healthy female friendships is something all women can benefit from, unquote. That is incredible. Yeah, so there is science to back this. It's insane. Hey, I'm Ash. I'm Nick. And we're the hosts of Copulators Die First. Do you like horror movies? Do you like gay stuff? Great, us too. And how convenient, because this is a gay horror comedy podcast. Surprise! We are your weekly guide to all things campy and creepy. Yas, work. Join us every Monday as we feature a new scary movie that we examine from our homosexual perspectives while reading them to filth. If you don't know what reading is, then you should tune in to find out. So, get ready for a spooky old time, because nothing and no one is safe, especially those horny teenagers. Wink. So grab a snack, get cozy, put on your reading glasses, and we'll guile you with tales of spooks and slashers. Don't forget to look for us on all your favorite listening platforms, and follow us on Instagram at copulatorsdiefirstpod. So, get ready. Because we give Scream Queens a whole new meaning. Tongue pop.
Okay, so let's talk about bad mothers. Oh, God. <laughs> Margaret White. She's the worst. She is the worst. <laughs> so if y'all haven't read it yet, author Sadie Doyle just came out with an amazing novel in August called Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, Monstrosity, Patriarchy, and the Fear of Female Power. <laughs> it's phenomenal, and you should all read it. It's so good. It sounds amazing. Yeah, so there's this great section of the book where she talks about Margaret, and at the end of that section, she sort of sums up her character and says, quote, Carrie represents what girls are when they come into touch with their power, untamed, overflowing, throwing sparks, and breaking glass. But Margaret is what female power looks like after a life spent in patriarchy, contained, made tiny, and petty and bitter with self-hatred turned to the purpose of rationalizing its own destruction. As I say, context is key. The context of male violence does not force us to forgive our bad mothers, but it may help us to understand the sources of their damage. The ultimate violence patriarchy does to women is to make us believe we deserve what has been done to us, a loop forever closing, breaking us so that we will raise broken women. Wow, yeah. And I mean, again, I'd like to bring up some of the psychological stuff here too. Like this whole film is an excellent example of what can go wrong when it comes to attachment theory. And in another article from Psychology Today, author Peg Streep says, In infancy and childhood, a daughter catches the first glimpse of herself in the mirror that is her mother's face. If her mother is loving and attuned, the baby is securely attached. She learns both that she is loved and lovable. The sense of being lovable, worthy of affection and attention, of being seen and heard, becomes the bedrock on which she builds her earliest sense of self and provides the energy for its growth. The daughter of an unloving mother, one who is emotionally distant, withholding, inconsistent, or even hypercritical or cruel, learns different lessons about the world and herself. The underlying problem, of course, is how dependent a human infant is on her mother for nurturance and survival, and the circumscribed nature of her world. What results is insecure attachment, characterized as either ambivalent, the child doesn't know whether the good mommy or the bad one will show up, or avoidant. The daughter wants her mother's love but is afraid of the consequences of seeking it. Ambivalent attachment teaches a child that the world of relationship is unreliable. Avoidant attachment sets up a terrible conflict between the child's needs for both her mother's love and for protection against her mother's emotional or physical abuse. And I think it's safe to say that Carrie is a mixture of all of these things because of the severe abuse that she suffers at the hands of Margaret. It's amazing how much children look to mothers and fathers to, you know, act a certain way because their brains are developing at that point. So if they see like something that's fractured, they might that that might affect the rest of their brain structure. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it carries through all the way up until adulthood. Like it's so insane how crucial that early stage is and then like all the way up through adolescent like puberty and adolescence and that kind of thing and it's amazing how much this film just like hits the nail on the head when it comes to abuse and like avoidant behavior and stuff like that with Carrie. 
Yeah, and I actually want to share a great quote from Al Rosenberg from an essay that they wrote for Bitch Flicks, and they say, quote, Mothers who abuse their children, abandon them, or neglect them, are easy to spot and label as bad mothers. Then there are the subtler forms of bad mothering. For these types, it all comes down to control. Control through religion, respectability, or ambition. It is in these three arenas that the mommy dearests of the world push their daughters to a breaking point, unquote. And isn't this just like Margaret White? She controls Carrie's beliefs and her self-esteem and her ambitions for something more. In the end, Carrie does break. She completely destroys her school and she kills her mother after her mother's last attempt at controlling her, which is by killing her. Mm -hmm. So I want to end this section on one last quote by Molly Brianna Collins in her essay, Carrie's Choice, Contemporary Feminism and Sociopolitical Constructions of Womenhood in Film Adaptations of Stephen King's Carrie. And so she says, quote, De Palma's film also argues for a woman's place in the home and that a woman in power is destructive in nature, perpetrating King's construction of women's lives about a male directive. Carrie's telekinetic powers accumulate as a symptom of menstruation that compromises a woman's ability to control her emotions and actions. Oh my god. Additionally, the characterization of Margaret contributes to an indictment of the single mother. Yeah. As the film places particular emphasis on the absence of her husband and her inability to instill in Carrie the ideal of the submissive woman, unquote. And man, that, I when I read that, I was like, dude, I did not even think of that. Yeah, no, Like, same. it completely takes menstruation and single motherhood and just turns it and makes it something that is completely and, and utterly something to be ashamed of and something that makes women uncontrollable. And that brings us to our final thought. Oh, boy. <laughs> Carrie, misogyny, patriarchal and anti-feminist themes. So in Stephen King's 1981 book, Dance Macabre, he talks about what inspired him to write Carrie. He says, quote, Carrie is largely about how women find their own channels of power, but also what men fear about women and women's sexuality. Writing the book in 1973 and only three years out of college, I was fully well aware of what women's liberation implied for me and others of my sex. Carrie is a woman feeling her powers for the first time and, like Samson, pulling down the temple on everyone in sight at the end of the book, unquote. That's a troubling quote. Yeah, it is. Obviously, um, I do not know Stephen King and he, I'm sure, has grown since then, but... I would hope so. Absolutely. Yeah. So Holly Durr, who I mentioned earlier, she actually comments on this quote and says... Quote, most feminist criticism of Stephen King's Carrie has focused on the male fear of powerful women that the author said inspired the film, with the anti-Carrie camp finding her death at the end to signify the defeat of the monstrous feminine and therefore a triumph of sexism. But Stephen King's honesty about what inspired his book notwithstanding, Carrie is as much an articulation of a feminist nightmare as it is of a patriarchal one with neither party coming out on top, unquote. Well, to me, like, I don't know. It 
it doesn't make a lot of sense because the only male relationship that Carrie really forms is with Tommy, who shows her a lot of kindness and decency, and he he is not afraid of her. The people who are afraid of Carrie are her mother and her classmates, even her gym teacher who tries to help her, who are all female. And then there's there's the principal, but he doesn't even remember her name. Like, he keeps calling her Cassie. And I think the takeaway isn't so much men being afraid of female sexuality. It's everyone else. I think you're right. I think it's women being afraid of their own sexuality. Yeah. And I mean, it shows how toxic other women can be as well. Like, I think that's very important also because feminism is about equality, right? So, like... We need to shed light on every part of what women go through, even when it involves other women. And like I said before, this story comes from the perspective of a man who maybe hasn't gone through the same experiences that a typical adolescent female will go through. But also, do you feel like with Tommy being sort of like the male hero, do you feel like that's sort of, um, I don't know, like a pat on the back? Yeah, I mean, probably. Yeah, like, like he shows nice up and... Boy. Yeah, oh, yeah, like, oh, he's such a nice guy. <laughs> Which, like, in all honesty, I mean, I guess Tommy is nice as far as, like, high school boys go. But, yeah, I think that his character serves as kind of like a, oh, look at what nice young men can do for, like, shy and unfortunate young women. Like... I don't know. The whole idea is pretty gross to me. But yeah, for me, at least, this whole story is more about like how adolescent females treat each other. How they can treat each other. How they can. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because not every experience is like this, obviously. But I would hope not. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. For sure. Great way to to end the season. Quality (laughs) content. Yes. Uh, so you guys, this like we said, are at the beginning of the show. Like this is the last episode of season six. Next week we're going to be doing uh, Halloween creepy pastas. You all seem to really love the Christmas creepy pastas we did last year. Yes, which was so funny because I did too. That was a fun time. Oh my god, <laughs> yes, the best. So this year we'll do some Halloween creepypastas and yeah, that'll be next week. Hope you guys enjoy it. And then we're going to be taking some time off uh, to get ready for our special episode. Uh, We have some books that we're reading over break and we're going to write the script and it's going to be great. So we cannot wait to share that with you guys. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon and that will take you right to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We upload full-length episodes early there. We also give away Patreon gifts and review horror trailers and TV shows and new movies over there. So become a patron, won't you? Yeah, and you can also help support the show by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. You can also help us out by telling a friend and spreading the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.